Well, turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 14, go through the end of the chapter, and we're seeing really the last of the seven churches. You know, the, the first part of the book of Revelation shows Jesus Christ, that John sees him, and then Jesus says, right, these seven letters to seven churches. We've been going through those, and this morning, this is the seventh letter to the church, and it's the church at Laodicea. These are actual churches that existed at the time of John. This is around the year 85 to 90, maybe even 95 AD. And so here is uh, all of these things going on. We're seeing the letter, and this is John. Is a, Jesus had appeared to John, told him to write the letters. There's information there that we can know and apply. And, and it's not only that for information to a particular church, but for all the churches. Each one of the letters ends by saying, let the one who hears the Spirit say to the churches. So it's always plural. This morning, we're going to look at the church of Laodicea. It's called the lukewarm church. Now, you know, lukewarm sometimes sounds good, but in this passage, in this way, it is not good. So let's think about this. What fires you up? Is it sports? I mean, we think, man, sports, and we love the our school and our teams and all those things, and sometimes they'll show a camera of people in a game or something, and they're just screaming and going up and down. Or sometimes maybe it's food. If you're a child and you say, you want to go to McDonald's, and they start jumping up and down, that fires you up. Or if you just pass some big test or big thing or maybe a big project at work, what fires you up? What about as a Christian? What fires you up? The opportunity that maybe you got to share your faith with someone, and they put their faith in Christ for eternal life. Or maybe the fact that you've studied the Bible on your own and you see something and you say, I've never put this together before. This is the first time I've ever seen this. Or that you love to see people growing and, and making disciples and those kind of things. What fires us up? Well, you know, sometimes people start off and they're, they're going good and then they just kind of settle down and go through the motions. And this morning we're going to look at a church which we call it the lukewarm church. And as we look at this church, uh, as you know, that we can we can look at each of these uh, these seven churches, and this is the seventh one. As we've seen them, we said, how does this relate to us? How, what's happening in this church? How would it relate to this church or even the church today? Well, as we look at this, a lot has been written. Much has been written describing the modern church in America as fitting this church the best. And we're going to see it. What is this church like? And and is is what's this church like? And how are we like? And how is the church in America like? You know, we're the richest nation in the world. We're rich. I have a, a friend. Let me just say this. There's a, a, a family, and they are in um, the Philippines, and they started. They got to our website and started watching all our stuff, and they ordered our book. I mean, they just use everything. And so he, he and I started talking together. They came to the United States and drove all the way down here to be with Gene and me, and we went out to eat with them, and then they drove back, and now they're going back to the Philippines. But he sent me pictures. And when they met, he started five churches, and the churches that he started, where they meet is like just pieces of board put up. And when they baptize, he showed me, he sent a picture, and he has a barrel, a big old barrel. And they stand down in the barrel of water, and he pushes them down like this because they have no place to baptize. And we say, wow, that's so sad. No, well, not sad for them. And sometimes we look at all that we have. And sometimes people say that this last church sort of matches, describes the modern church in America and, and so we want to we want to think about it and see how it fits together, uh, and and uh, uh, you know we see so many people struggle, and I, I read this quote the other day, and I just want to read it to you. It says the problem of the church in America is that what we believe on Sunday doesn't really affect the rest of our lives. Ironside was a great Bible teacher. He described the church full of people who say, "Just give me enough of the Holy Spirit to save me, but not enough to make me too different." Prof Hendricks, he was my 
my favorite professor at Dallas Seminary, he said, there's never been so many believers with so little impact. What's going on? What's happened? The church has blended into society. I don't know if you know this or not, but the average Christian family spends more on pet food than they give to their church. I have a pastor friend from Dallas Seminary. He and I talk every now and then. He said he tried to get his men. He said, here's what I want you to do. He's got three, four, five men he meets with. He said, I want you, would you, could you get 10 minutes a day for a quiet time, whether it's in the morning or at night before you go to bed, 10 minutes a day. And so far he said, I've not got a single man that says I can spare 10 minutes a day to have a quiet time. I was in another church one time, and a lady said to me, he said, would you want to help with a Sunday school class? And we didn't mean teach the class. We meant just come and sort of help the teacher. And she said this, well, I would say, yeah, but there might be something else I'd want to do come along, so I don't want to commit to anything. The lukewarm church. What we're going to see in Revelation chapter 3 is what we call a lukewarm church. Remember, we've seen these churches, the seven churches. We saw the church at Ephesus who had left their first love. They were serving out of duty and not out of love. And the church at Smyrna, which was an amazing church, they were a suffering church. They were faithful. It's not America. It's not a suffering church, but there are other parts of the world that are. We saw the church at Pergamum that was compromising with false teaching. We saw the church at Thyatira that was tolerating sin in the church. We saw the church at Sardis, which was called the dying church. And then we saw last week, of course, Philadelphia, the church of the open door, the faithful church, and this morning, Laodicea, and they call it the lukewarm church. So how does this all tie together? How can we make applications and those kind of things? You remember in each of the letters, there are six things. There's a destination to the particular church. There's a description of Jesus. There's a commendation what the church was doing right. There's a condemnation of what the church was doing wrong. There's an exhortation what the church needs to do, and then there's the promises of God. As we look at this last letter, there is no commendation. There was one other letter that was no commendation, so we'll think about it as well. So go ahead and look at Revelation chapter 3. And by the way, this is the last of the seven letters. When we get through these letters, we'll start chapter 4, and I'll mention to you at the very end. In chapter 4, we're going to heaven. We're going to see what it is like in the heavenly places where God the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. What's it like there? We'll see that beginning next week. This is the last letter. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 14. To the, church, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? Now, we said the angel, the Greek word angel, angelos, means messenger. Most likely, he's writing to the, to the leader of the church, maybe the pastor of the church. So he's writing this letter to the leader, the angel of the church in Laodicea. Now, Laodicea uh, was about... 65 miles from Philadelphia. It was founded in 250 BC. Uh, a guy by the name of Antiochus II founded it. He named it, he named it after his wife. Her name was Laodicea. And uh, we know that um, when Paul writes in the Colossian letter, he says, read this letter I wrote to you. That's Colossians. And he says, and also read the letter coming from the church of Laodicea. Well, we don't have that letter. We don't have a, a letter to the church at Laodicea, except this one, of course, but this, this was at a different time. So there's two thoughts here. One is there was a letter written to this church earlier that wasn't part of Scripture, or it was a circular letter. Many people believe the church at Ephesus, the letter to the church at Ephesus, was meant to be a, a letter that was passed around, and so maybe it really was the Ephesian letter that they were talking about. We don't really know. This church was well... Oh, there, I just wanted to remind you, 
that we started, they started and went in a circle. There was the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and now Laodicea. So he's made the loop as he's talked about each one of these churches. And this church, Laodicea, was wealthy. I mean, it was a wealthy area. The town, the city itself was rich. And, and the people in the church apparently were rich. And we're going to see what they say about themselves. And, and what, what's happened is this church has sort of blended in. You know, the Bible says, uh, stop being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And it's very easy to get wrapped up and be like the world. And this is what I think has happened here. Let me remind you of some things about this church. They had a banking center there. They were very, very wealthy, but the church was spiritually poor. They had a medical school there in which they made this salve that they put on people's eyes, and everything, but they were spiritually blind. And they were famous for their soft, dark wool, but they were spiritually naked. Now, you may say, well, how do you come up with the fact they were spiritually poor? Uh, spiritually blind and spiritually naked because this is what the passage is going to say. We're going to see it in just a minute. This is who these people were. And, uh, and so we look at it and a lot of times people say, well, it's like us. The, the church in America is wealthy, healthy, and clothed wonderfully. Much like the modern church who is spiritually poor, blind, and naked. You know, when you look at America, we're the richest people in the world. We have everything. Um, there's a lady that uh, I've told you that a lot of people from all over the world look at our website and things. There was a lady in Africa that she wrote us and she just started communicating. She was using all our stuff. She said, I don't have a Bible. I don't have a real Bible. And she said, I've tried. She had a computer and she said, I tried to get something to work on a computer, but there's not enough anything to make it work. Could you send us a Bible? Well, I don't know if you'll know this, but to ship a Bible, to ship a book anywhere, it's like $80 to ship a, just to ship the Bible. Well, we happen to have a Bible, and over a period of, we just said, okay, we're going to send this lady a Bible, and we send it to her, and of course, she's jumping up and down like she's actually got a copy of the Bible. How many copies do you have? We don't just say, I hope I get a copy of the Bible. We say, I wonder which translation I'm going to use, what I'm going to read from. I mean, those kind of things. We're so rich. The, the church in America is wealthy and healthy and clothed wonderfully, but is it possible that we're spiritually poor, blind, and naked? We'll see how we compare maybe as we look at this church. So he starts off and says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, and then he says, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. This is the description of Jesus Christ. And look what he says. He's called the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of creation. Let's look at that quickly. The amen. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but the Hebrew word A-M-E-N means truth. It was translated from Hebrew, A-M-E-N, into Greek. A-M-E-N, that's the word amen, and the word amen in Greek means truth. It's been translated into English. We say amen, and it really means truth. Now, a lot of people think it means this is the end of the prayer, you know, because you'll pray and you'll say, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, like that's the end of the prayer. No, the word means truth. You're actually saying when you end your prayer, this is truth. Here, Jesus is called the truth, the amen, because uh, he is the way and the truth and the life, John 14, 6. He is the one that is the way, the truth, and the life. I want you to see something. You may have never realized this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. It says, for as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. That means every time he makes a promise, it is true. Therefore, also through him, he is our amen, our truth to the glory of God through us. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but that's who he is. He's the amen. The second thing we saw is the faithful and true witness. He's faithful because he does what he says. He's true because he's always right. He's the truth. And he's the witness that tells the truth. Think about this. He is faithful. 
He is faithful to come to the earth, to leave the glories of heaven, to die on the cross, to pay for sin. Think about this. When we look at Philippians, it says, even though Jesus Christ was in the heavenly places, he said, I'm going to come to the earth. He humbled himself to be obedient to death, becoming a human being to die for us. He was faithful to do that. He is also true. His message is true. And then the third thing, he is the witness. He has come to reveal the Father. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You know the disciples were with Jesus, and Jesus talked about the Father, and one of them said, we, we don't know what the Father looks like. Tell us what the Father looks like. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I, I've come to be the witness of the Father, and that's really who Jesus is. And so he, he is, as it says here, he is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. And then here's the third thing that bothers some people. He's the beginning of the creation. He's the creator. Some people read this verse and it says, oh, he's the beginning of the creation of God. That means he is the first one ever created. No, he's not the first one created. He's always existed. He's not created. When it says he's the beginning of the creation, it means the word source. He is the one who made all things. In Colossians 1, 16 and 17, it says all things were created by him, for him, and through him. He is before all things and all things hold together. In John chapter 1, verse 3, says everything that has ever been made was made by Jesus. So he is the creator of everything. So we start this book. He says he's the true, he's the faithful and true witness, and he's the creator of all things. Wow. Well, we expect that as we continue reading the letter, that there would be a, a commendation, like what they've done right. They haven't done right in fact, he skips the commendation and goes straight to the condemnation. What does he say in verse 15? I know your deeds. Now, we've been seeing this, every, and every letter starts the same way. I know your deeds. God knows everything. Jesus knows everything. He knows everything about our church. He knows everything about us. Individually, not individually, he knows it all. So watch what he says. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, then I'll, I'm going to stop there for a second because the last part of it, we're going to talk about it in a second. He says, you're neither cold nor hot. He says, you're neither cold nor hot. You're in the middle. Now, I want you to understand, why would he say that to this church? Because outside Laodicea was a mountain. At the top of the mountain was a stream that came all the way down and brought water to the city. If you went to the very top of the mountain, the water was cold. By the time it got down to the bottom, there were these springs there that were heated, and the water was hot. But if you got in the middle, the water was lukewarm. And he's saying, cold water's real good, hot water's real good, lukewarm water's not very good. And he's saying, you are neither, notice what he says, you, I know your deeds, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold. Or hot. He says, you're not either one. Cold is good and hot is good, but this church was neither. They were lukewarm. He actually says, I wish you were hot or cold. I remember reading this and some people come to me and say, you know, God, God, God wants you to be hot. He doesn't want you to be cold. I said, wait a minute. No, this passage doesn't say this. This passage says cold is good and hot is good. What's bad is being in the middle and being lukewarm. Now, you all know that cold water tastes great when it's got ice in it. Hot water tastes good when you, you know, if you're drinking coffee or tea or something like that. But lukewarm water, to be honest with you, I don't really like water. So I like Cokes. But anyway, so <laughs> if I drink water, I want it to be either cold or hot. But I, if you drink lukewarm water, you go, yuck. You know, right? And that's what he's saying. He said, I want you guys to be hot or cold, but you're neither one. You're lukewarm. 
And then he says something that bothers people because they just don't, they haven't read it. Look, notice back again at verse 15. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. And so because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You know what he actually says? You make me sick to my, I'm going to throw you up. I'm going to vomit you out. You make me sick, you make me throw up. And this is not anything to do with salvation. I've had people come and say, he's going to throw them up and they lose their salvation. Listen, you can't lose salvation. Salvation is a gift. It's eternal life. It never ends. He's writing to believers and he says, you make me sick to my stomach. I would throw you up. That's what he's really saying. And so when we look at this passage, we see he says, you know, I wish you were cold, cold water up there. I wish you were hot, hot water down here, but you're lukewarm. And because you're neither one, you make me throw up. You make me sick to my stomach. And listen, the church doesn't realize that. I think the modern church in America is that. And I think you can talk to people all day long and you say, how's your church? Always wonderful. What do you do? They don't do anything. Bible's not taught. They're not making disciples. They're not growing. They've never led somebody to Christ. They've got activities, but we saw even a couple of weeks ago that activities mean nothing. They've got all these things. They do nothing. They don't even realize it. They didn't realize, just didn't realize the truth. They thought they were fine. Look what he goes on to say. He said, because you say, I am rich, and I've become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. They said, we, we're fine. We don't need anything. We're fine. They say, we're rich. We need nothing. You know, you could talk to people in America and say, what do you need? Nothing. We got 10 Bibles. I got 10 copies of the Bible. I got this. I got all the clothes I want. We got nice chairs. We got carpet. We got everything. We can baptize on a big thing out there. We got, we got fresh water. We got all kind of things. We're good. And he says to them, you know what you say? You say we're fine because you say I'm rich and I become wealthy. You know, you, we've talked about this. There, there. I saw an expose. I saw a, a, a short little documentary about three, well, about a couple of months ago, and it was showing six pastors in the United States that their whole message is you should be wealthy, you should be rich, and that you give to their ministry, and, they will, and God was supposed to make you rich, and if you're really being blessed by God, you'll be rich. And they'll say something like, Abraham was rich, and David was rich, and Solomon was rich. But when you get to Jesus, they can't say that. Because Jesus said, I don't even have a place to spend the night, and I only had one thing of clothes. Listen, being rich is no indication of anything. There's nothing wrong with wealth. Use it for the glory of God. But this church said, we don't need anything. We're rich. They were trusting in material possessions. That was what, and they don't know. And so look what he says, verse 17. Because you say I'm rich and you have become wealthy and you have need nothing, you do not know, here we go, that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. See, I didn't make that up. That's what he says. He says, you don't know. You missed the truth. You're wretched and miserable. You're spiritually poor. You're not growing. You think you're rich, but you're spiritually poor. You're blind. You think you can see, but you're blind because you're missing the truth. And you think you got all these good clothes and everything, but you're naked. You're, you're not wrapped in a righteous lifestyle. That's what he really says. He said they thought they were poor. I mean, they thought they were rich, but they were poor. They thought they made salve for the eyes. They were actually blind. They thought they made great clothes, and they're actually naked. The point is they were unaware and a lot of times I think there are churches and people who, who are doing fine, so to speak, and they're unaware that they're not doing anything. They're lukewarm. So what does he say to them? He's going to give them some advice. Look what he said. And by the way, when Jesus gives advice, you ought to take it. 
<laughs> Here's what he says. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now he mentioned the three things they were famous for already. Their money, their salve, and their clothes. And he says, no, 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 you don't know. I advise that you get from me. When he says, buy from me, God says, I'll give you what you really need. And what did he say? I'll give you the gold. That's spiritual riches. That's spirit, not material wealth, but spiritual wealth. He said, I'll give you white garments that's clothed walking in God's righteousness. I'll give you the true eye so that you can see the spiritual truths. So he says, I'll give you the, the things you really, really need. And, and, and he does it. Where do, we, where do we get all this? Think about it. Rich spiritually, you know. So where do we get it? The key for believers is to be spiritually wealthy, not materially wealthy. There's nothing wrong with material wealth, but that's not the goal. The goal is spiritually wealthy and to be clothed in righteous acts. And by the way, sometimes in the scripture, you'll see people clothed in white. And sometimes that means the righteousness of God that he gives to believers and we're right before God. But many times when you see them clothed in white, it's referring to the righteous acts, to the rewards, to the things they've done right and being clothed there. And so he says, you know, I'm going to do this for you. He's going he's to do this. And so he says, God makes us wealthy with spiritual blessing. God clothes us in his righteous acts. God helps us see things spiritually. Have you thought about that? That he makes us, if you've ever looked at Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one, beginning about verse three, all the way to verse 17, in the Greek language, that's one sentence in the Bible. That's one sentence in Greek language. And he names a whole bunch of spiritual blessings that God has for us. And then we're clothed in righteous acts when we do right. And then he helps us to see spiritually. He gives us the Holy Spirit so we can do that. So he says, listen, I advise you, get from me. The only way you can get is from him. Get back in fellowship with him. Do what's right. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you can really have true riches, spiritual riches, and white garments that can clothe you and, and, and take away the shame of your nakedness. That's true clothes, not these clothes y'all make. And I've got an eye salve that you can really see. You can see spiritually. And then he says, okay, this is true. And then he gives them this information. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He says, listen, I love my children. I reprove them. I show them wrong. And let me just say this. We've been seeing all of these churches. And every one of them, there's, two of them do great. The rest of them, there's always something wrong. And he says, repent. Change your mind. Get back. Do what's right. And it's never too late. Even last week, we saw the dying church. In fact, in one part, it actually said, you're dead. And yet he wasn't through with them. He said, you got a chance. And so in this passage, he says, change your mind. See your condition and do something about it. It is never too late. But as a believer, as an individual believer, sometimes we're going good and then we mess up. And then we get away from God or we don't grow anymore or something like that. It's never too late. We can always come back to God, start growing again, learning the Bible, being with believers. It can happen and we can make it that way. And so he says, listen, whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And then this next verse is one that is one of the most misunderstood and misused verses in the Bible. Notice chapter 3, verse 20. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This is not a salvation verse. I've known people who use it, and they'll say, Jesus is at the door of your heart. He's knocking on the door. If you'll just open the door, Jesus will come into your life and save you. This passage doesn't say that at all. We're not saved because we ask Jesus into our heart. We're saved because we believe in him for eternal life. This is a fellowship passage. He is writing to believers. Look what he says. I'm at the door. I'm knocking. If you hear, open the door. And what will happen? I will come into him. And what will we do? We will eat. We will dine. I will dine with him and he with me. This is where this is not a salvation passage. This is a, a, a fellowship passage. A fellowship passage. Look what he says. I will dine with me, or dine with him and him with me. And by the way, they, they normally, they ate a very light breakfast. Sometimes they didn't have a lunch in that day and time. But then at night was their biggest meal, if they had any money at all. But it was their biggest meal. This word here where it says, I will come in and eat with you. I will come in and dine with you. That's the word for the biggest meal. He says, I'll come in and we'll have a big meal. He's saying, let's fellowship together. You've missed it. You're looking at the wrong things. That's what he's telling them. He says, but listen, you don't have to be that way. Get the stuff from me. Get back. Open the door. I'll come in and we will fellowship with each other. It's never, never too late. And then he ends with the promise that he always does. An overcomer. Now, remember this. In 1 John, the book of 1 John, an overcomer is simply a believer. In the book of Revelation, an overcomer is a faithful believer. And so if you do what you're supposed to do, you'll be rewarded. Look what he says. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He says, whoever comes as a faithful believer will get to do what? Sit on the throne with Jesus Christ. Rule with Christ in the kingdom, a place in the kingdom. Let me just tell you something. A lot of people are confused about the kingdom and eternal state. And everybody has this idea, like when we all get to heaven or to the kingdom, everybody's going to be the same. No, we're not going to be the same. There are rewards. It's called the judgment seat of Christ, which is a rewarding stand. And those who have been faithful, those who are overcomers, will receive rewards. The reward in this instance that he's talking about is you'll get to rule with Jesus Christ. When Jesus rules on the earth for a thousand years and then known in eternity, he rules as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there are positions of responsibility for people all over the world. Faithful believers will get to rule with Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. And so he says that. Let me just give you the idea. This is the chart. And if you remember, Jesus died on the cross, paid for sin, and rose again. He sent into heaven. He's there. Here we are. This is the church age. One of these days, Jesus is going to come into clouds, and we're going to be taken off the face of the earth. There'll be that tribulation time period. That's going to start looking at the tribulation and the things starting in chapter 6. 4 and 5 is in heaven. Chapter 6 is the tribulation, and we'll start seeing that. And when Jesus comes back, we come with him, and he sets up a kingdom and rules for a 1,000 years. It's called the millennium. And what is amazing is, if you have been faithful now, you will have faithful, you'll have places to serve God then. Faithful now, serving him now, you'll have to be faithful to get to serve him then. That's what it all ties in. And then so he ends this by saying, listen carefully. He who has an ear, verse 22, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, notice it's plural, to the churches. He's not just writing to one church. He's writing to all these churches, and he's writing to us because this is the word of God given to us that we can make applications. And so the real question is, what are we? Is this us? Is this church in America? Is this our particular church? How does it fit together? What does he say? Wake up. 
get either hot or cold because you're poor and you're blind and you're naked and they didn't realize it. And I think sometimes in America, uh, I have to tell you the story. I, I went to a, and I was at Dallas Seminary, had to go at a course where you actually had to go visit these different ministries to see how they did it and what they actually believed. And so I went one Sunday morning downtown Dallas to a, a I'm not even going to tell you what church it was. It was a big church, huge church. They had seven on staff. That morning, they had seven people sitting up front. Church was big. I got out of my car. I had a Bible. I noticed people walking in, and these two little ladies came over to me and said, you want to come in with us? I, I was, yeah, I'll be glad. To. I looked around. Nobody had a Bible. So I got in, and I sat down, and nobody had a Bible. And one preacher got up and talked a little bit, sat down, and then the guy got up to give the message, and he never opened a scripture. He never read a verse. He never did anything. He walked back and forth, and then he sat down, and the little lady looked at me and she said, wasn't that wonderful? I didn't have the heart to say, that was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. But this is what the church in America could be. You're poor and you're blind and you're naked and you don't even know it. So what does he say? Wake up. Get hot. Get cold. Now next week, look at this right here. Uh, he says, come to me. Have spiritual wealth, clothed and righteously spiritual. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Look at it with me. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. A door in heaven? And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, that's Jesus, said to me, come up here, and I will show you the things that must take place after these things. Wow, we're going to see the future. Immediately, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. We're going to heaven next week. People say, I want to go to heaven. We're going next week to see what heaven is like. So let me, let me just end this real quickly. I know time is up. So let me do this for you. Let's examine our lives. Are we lukewarm? Is it our desire? Are they for Christ or for ourselves? Is our plan what we want to do or what God wants us to do? Is our service for self or others? It's so easy in America to be rich but really be poor, to see but really be blind, to clothe but really be naked. We don't want to be like this church. Let's make a decision to be on fire for the Lord. Offer ourselves, Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercy of God, present your bodies to God, to, to live for God. Say, I'm, I want my life to count for Jesus Christ. And having our fellowship day after day with him. Remember, the door is open. And then last but not least, let's remember that God disciplines his children. It is never too late. But he says to them, get your act together. It's not too late. It's not too late. Let me just remind you this. The first, the first church, they, they left their first love, serving God out of, we want to serve God out of love, not, not just the duty, suffering church, standing for Christ, compromising church, don't deal with, let, get rid of false teachers, the tolerating church, deal with sinful people. The dying church needs to wake up. The faithful church we saw last week, stand strong. And finally, the lukewarm church, get either hot or cold and start making things happen.